Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is a Philadelphian living in Tel Aviv. She is both an art historian and a writer. She has published numerous art historical articles, several exhibition catalogs, and a book chosen as one of Slate Magazine's best annual books. Also, she has published works of creative nonfiction in journals and two novels, Count to a Thousand and From Where I Stand. She is presently working on her third novel. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Caroline Goldberg Egra. Thank you very much. <laughs> Caroline, we're glad to have you. And our opening question on authors over 50 is always so, what took you so long to write your first book? Well, I was really busy being an art historian. So I was writing a lot of research based articles and and digging into history and art. And I really didn't think I had anything to write, although I loved to write as a child. <laughs> so I was a slow starter. Well, once you thought you had to write that book, how did you proceed with it? So the first thing that happened is I, I didn't proceed with the book. I started writing about my life because I had a kind of interesting life story because I'd moved from one country to another. So I started writing a blog called Stuck in the Middle because I felt like I was stuck in the middle age-wise, in the middle of my family, and in the middle between two countries. And that just kind of uh, led me to wanting to do more and more. And I wanted to write a book that would reflect my experience, but I didn't want it to be about me because it wasn't just my experience. And that's really how I just decided to go about writing it. I took some writing classes because although I was a good writer, I didn't know how to build a story with a storyline start to finish. So I had to work on that. Well, is it different writing in a, a different country? Do you still publish in the U.S.? How does that work? So my, the first book that I wrote, was, which was four years ago, I published in Israel. Uh, the, my newest book that just came out in January, I published in the States, but I write in English. I, I, so for me, my main audience is the United States and, some, and my English speakers here in Israel. Did you search for an agent or decide to choose a hybrid or did you go with the small press or self-publish? So my first book, I was I went with a small independent press and published it myself with this press. Uh, 
in Jerusalem, in Israel. And the second book, I really wanted to get to an agent. I found that agents were very interested in the book, but they really didn't think that I was going to do much for their image because I was too old. I really did feel like um, they didn't see a future in me, even though for me, I've just haven't stopped writing since I wrote that first book. So I see a great future, but they didn't see it that way. And I ended up going with an independent small publisher in the States, which I was very happy with. Well, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear a little about your being an expat in a foreign country. Maybe some of them have considered living out of the U.S. Can you tell us a few of the pros and cons of living in Israel? So uh, there are a lot of pros. The weather is fabulous. No complaints about the weather. Winter is not, would not be considered winter anywhere else, maybe in Miami. Uh, it is a little humid. But um, it's a beautiful country. It's, it's picture book beautiful. I mean, it just was the kind of thing I always dreamt about. Um, and I love living here. It's just changed my life tremendously. It's very interesting to move to another culture and to raise children in another culture, which had its challenges. Um, but there are some cons. I'm very far away. I missed most of my friends' weddings because it was around the same time. Um, and those were, were not the days that we hopped on a plane as easily as we do now. But, um, and, but I don't miss my family as much as you think, because my mother comes here a lot. My mother and father was alive, came here a lot. And, um, and I travel back quite a bit. Of course, it's also easy because we can do things like Zoom. <laughs> and uh, for example, we did a Zoom Seder for Passover. And actually, it was almost more fun than any Seder we'd ever had because we had quite an extended family on the Zoom, which we've never managed in the past. So there's some pros to the cons. Well, our modern conveniences have really changed the way we do business and and pleasure and everything else. I have been Zooming into book clubs all over the United States, and I certainly couldn't travel to all of those if we didn't have you know, the Zoom or the FaceTime. Absolutely. I feel that way about conferences also, that there are a lot and lectures and book talks that I'd never, I'd never been able to participate in being so far away and seven hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. And now I've been able to do almost everything, but unfortunately they are cutting down some of the Zooms now. Um, I think it will stay with us, though. I think that there will always be opportunities, and it's just wonderful. I can just tap into what's going on in the, in the writing scene in America very easily. Well, tell us what is your inspiration for the plot of your books? So, well, my first book was um, I wanted to write about being uh, an Anglo. That's what they call us in Israel, because it's not just Americans. They're British. There are a lot of South Africans here. Canadians. So if you're an English speaker, you are an Anglo, which is very strange growing up with the word Anglo-Saxon, because they just mushed it together to make you, to give us a new name. Um, I wanted to write about their experience, and it's uh, very different uh, coming over here and living here. And what I, really the, the turning point in the book is that it, it's all a fantasy. We have book clubs and we have sports groups and mahjong and bridge groups and parent, children, child, child groups, but we have the army 
and the army was really the, the, the game changer. And that was about my first book, what it's like to send your kids to the army when it's mandatory. Um, my second book is about mothers and daughters, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. I read a ton of fiction, um, also nonfiction, but I'm a fiction writer um, uh, about mothers and daughters. And um, I wanted to explore that subject, uh, which was a little tricky, of course, since I have a mother and a daughter. <laughs> well, I think that's a universal topic for all of us, you know mothers and daughters and our relationships, the pull and the push. <laughs> what about your writing routine? Do you write every day? Are you a morning person or a night person? I'm a morning person. I get up very early in the dark and I like it. And um, I usually write early. Uh, sometimes I, I'm an athlete. So I go do whatever I need to do first, and then I'll start writing. But by one o'clock, I'm pretty much finished. I can't do it anymore because I get up, say, 4.35. So, right. <laughs> so I'm actually up to dinner around then. <laughs> and that's when I finish. But I love the morning hours. I love the quiet. And uh, my kids are older now, so they're officially adult, I guess. So I enjoy those hours of the day. The, the juices flow. How long on average do you think it takes you to write a book? Well, you know, I, oh, I've just for these first two, I would say they were both four years, including to publish four years to publish. So I would say I would, I'm a draft writer. I write in drafts, meaning that I just keep on writing. I write, I write, I write. My sentences are okay. They're not, um, they're strong, but they're not always the way I want them. And I see where the story is taking me, which means that there are always surprises. I come up with a surprise and then I have to rewrite what I've done. So I have so many drafts. So I would say two years of writing, a year of working. I have worked with a story editor um, and that's been wonderful. She's the one that will tell me when something really isn't working or something's not fleshed out properly or there's a character that needs more work. You know, she's my out, outside source, my, my, my other eyes. And then a year for the publishing. Well, that's pretty, pretty fast for most people. <laughs> Sometimes we hear about people taking eight, nine, 15 years to write a book. So you're on a pretty wow. good schedule there. I don't know. I just saw that Lisa Scottolini said she writes two books a year. Oh. So, <laughs> Yes. And then there are those people. <laughs> Please tell us about the book you've brought today to share a few paragraphs with us. So this book is about, um, um, I actually expanded the mother-daughter concept. And that, again, this was through the draft process. I just kept on expanding even the basics of the story. It's a triangle with a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. And as you know, a triangle is a, is, has no exit. It can be equilateral, so there can be equal ba balance between the characters, and it can be um, uh, an acute triangle, I guess. I'm not sure. Isosceles triangle. I don't remember from my school. <laughs> and then it's imbalanced. So I wrote about the balance between the characters. The mother, Elizabeth, has had a very difficult relationship with her mother and is trying to raise her daughter, Belle, in a different fashion. 
uh, Belle arrives beginning of the book. It's the start of the book, arrives home and basically announces that she's won this fabulous opportunity that will involve her moving to New York and moving in with her grandmother from whom Elizabeth, the mother, has distanced herself for decades. So basically the fallout is that Elizabeth has to find a way left back in the Great Plains because that's where she lives with her daughter and mother together in New York. She has to find a new way to fill in the empty space and actually um, uh, signs on for a community Jewish community project where she works with a young woman, her daughter's age, who has been removed from her mother's house and wants nothing more than to return to her mother. So there's the balance of the two daughters, one pulling apart and one trying to hold everything together. So that's, that's, I don't want to tell anymore because it would, there would be spoilers. <laughs> well, why don't you read us a few paragraphs? Sure. So I'm just going to read the beginning because I think the beginning actually makes it really clear what a universal story it is. I mean, we've all been there, you'll see. Okay, so the book is told from in first person from the perspective of the different characters. That's why it's called From Where I Stand, from where each of them stands, what their perspective is. And the first is Elizabeth, the mother figure. One more set of headlights. They swung my way, blinding me with their yellow glow, but I didn't blink and they moved away, disappearing down the street. It wasn't Belle, not yet. It was so late. She was angry with me. She'd been angry for weeks. It had all started with that boy, that Tom, with the moment I'd walked into her room and found them half naked in bed, on the way to trouble, if not already there. I was shocked. I hadn't even known Belle was home and just wanted to collect her laundry. I wasn't expecting the trail of unfamiliar clothing on the floor by the door, the discarded boots, several sizes too large to be hers. The appearance of my daughter in bed with the boy, mid-embrace. She was only 16. Get up, get dressed, get out. I squealed like an animal being butchered. The boy jumped up, throwing on clothing. Belle disappeared under the sheets. Next thing I knew, he was out the window. Not the door, because then he would have had to pass by me. Belle jerked out of bed, her eyes blazing. How could you? What's the matter with you? I stood in the doorway watching as she pulled on clothes and then hopped out the window as well, leaving me standing there. Left alone, I made my way between the trail of abandoned clothing and sat on the edge of the bed. What is the matter with me? How could I have reacted in such a fashion when I knew full well what it felt like? The first time love meant something more than a kiss. My own mother took my adolescence hard. She was ill-equipped to deal with a burgeoning young woman. It was impossible to understand how decades later, having swapped roles, now the worried mother, I'd become the adjudicator. Forgetting my own experience, I'd become my mother's daughter, putting principles ahead at any cost. Oh, Caroline, you had us right back there with the (laughs) teenage years for ourselves and for our children. And that was a great scene. Thank you. Thank you. I'm always interested in what you might have edited out of the book that you decided not to include. So for me, I, I had, um, I had to work very hard writing the three characters because, uh, as I said, I'm fascinated with mothers and daughters. I have a very interesting triangle myself 
And it, it was very clear to me, I didn't want to write about my story because, and this wasn't my story. So actually when I started the book, it was closer to my story. And I had to, and I just kept on splicing and splicing and saying, no, it's not about me. It's not about me. I had to remind myself all the time. I'm happy to say that I think I succeeded because my daughter, the, my daughter is nothing like the daughter. Uh, I'm very little, very little, like the main character. I've, I've asked my friends who've read the book, is it me? And I, I hope it's not me. And they said, no, it's really not you. The grandmother is closest probably um, to my mother, but just more in parts of the story, um, not really her character. And, uh, and she and I had, have had a few conversations about that. So there was a lot of editing to make sure that it was universal. I really wanted to capture that experience. Uh, actually, my son is reading the book and he right now, and he said, oh, you really nailed the relationships. He said, you nailed them. And it just made me so happy. That was yesterday. <laughs> That's very high praise from a young man. <laughs> Do you have uh, research that you conduct before you begin writing or just research as you go along if you need to? So this book, um, I, I, to, in writing this book, as I said, I'm a draft writer. I kept on having to create the situation. I had to remove the daughter, the mother and her daughter from the grandmother in order to pull them back together, in order to have a way to physically cross a distance to get them back together. So I was looking for a place. Um, I wanted it to be west of Chicago because she'd gone to Chicago. She'd grown up in New York City. She was a real city girl, moved to Chicago. I needed another big city. And now I needed somewhere really small and different. And through one of the characters, through her husband, I landed them in Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> and I didn't know much about Grand Forks, North Dakota, except that there's a major flight school there, which I knew because of my son at UND. And I, I started researching it. And the, just the, the, the story got more and more interesting because I began to think of how would anyone find their home so far away, because when I moved far away to Israel, um, I didn't know anyone, but it's, a, it's an embracing country, especially, obviously, if you're Jewish, it's a very embracing country. And it just wasn't, it was difficult, but it wasn't somewhere so out of the, so out of the realm. So I looked at the Jewish community in Grand Forks, and I found this amazing community that had been there since the 1880s. And it's all, all the material was archived. It was just a gem. It was really like finding a diamond in the rough. And all of a sudden, the, that's how the Jewish community came into the story. I never planned on making that basically a main element. It's really the framework work upon which the story rests at this point. And I just found this incredible community that was there to take advantage of the Great Railway. A lot of merchants moved out there and as I said, uh, and then I had to do a lot of research um, and I enjoyed it. So, but it, I wasn't anticipating that it was a serendipitous discovery. I think that's fascinating when that happens. And it, it does feel like a real treasure that you found. What about marketing? Is marketing any different when you're in a, a different country or do you just use the internet? How do you market your books? Well, because I'm writing in English, um, again, most of my market is American, but of course, right. I mean, the first book 
I don't think Instagram was as big in 2018. I don't remember. I don't even know if it existed, but I don't remember using it. But I know that I'm heavily promoting on Instagram, on Facebook, on social media that I think are effective for our age groups. I think Facebook is still the place for our demographic for 50 and up, for sure. Um, and very little on Twitter because I'm not sure that that's the audience. In terms of being in Israel, as I said, most of the people I'm selling to are um, other uh, immigrants like myself. So there are English speaking groups here. I just did an event for an English speaking group last week, in fact, live, my first live event for the book. I've only done Zoom before then, before this. And um, so it's mostly through the same kinds of things you'd be, we'd be doing in the States. Just every, attacking from all and from all corners, shall I say. What do you think the best money you've ever spent as a writer has been? Oh, that I know for sure. Mm -hmm. I would say that my story editor, who is a prolific writer, I took a class with her through UCLA's online writing program. I think back in 2014, a long time ago. And that's because I took some story writing courses at the beginning to pull myself out of academic writing into fiction. And I, oh, I send at least two drafts her way. And I actually think that, that she's irreplaceable. I have heard of another woman who is equally irreplaceable. And I'm sure there are a lot of writers out there. That's really how a lot of writers are making their money these days, I think. Um, and they're so valuable. You need to have professional eyes on that manuscript. And I don't mean editing in terms of line editing, periods, commas, writing. It's just to make sure that story worked, to make sure that when you come to the end of a page in a chapter that you want to turn the page. Yes, our, our editors are certainly so important from developmental all the way to that line edit so that our work looks professional and reads professional. So that, that's very important. And I think that is a money well spent. Do you have time to read for pleasure? If you do, what, what genres do you read? So I read all the time. I don't have a day that I don't read. I just adore reading. And I'm, I think that about 80% of the books I read are mother-daughter books. <laughs> First of all, they're endless. There are endless books out there. And in addition, um, I'm always interested to see uh, the different way that mothers are portrayed um, I just actually wrote up a, a summary guide to modern mothers in, in literature. I looked at modern, like the last five years of mother-daughter literature, you know, there you can just categorize them, the mothers that we all would love that are supportive, the mothers that don't want to be mothers, the mothers that are no longer there. There are a lot of mother-daughter books where the mother has already deceased, predeceased the book. And the daughter is either discovering the mother's secrets or living with the fallout of having lost her mother. Um, and they're the mothers, uh, they're the mothers of the, I hate to say the mass shootings that I read some of those books too. Um, just good, bad, ugly uh, mothers that don't know how to mother, that they're there, but they don't know how to mother. And I'm just fascinated with these kinds of books. 
Yes. And I'm afraid as mothers, we're always blamed for everything. You know, mothers are always blamed for no matter what happens in life. So that's always interesting to me. And speaking of mothers, what does your own mother think about your writing and, and especially about this particular topic? So um, my mother reads everything I write and she listens to every presentation I do Zoom and she's attended several events. Um, I have two good stories about what she thinks of my writing. The first one was my first book when I wrote about the Anglos in Israel, the English speakers. And when she presented me, she um, she presented me to her synagogue and she stood on the bima, the, you know, the, the podium. And she said, you know, this is my daughter and she has a doctorate and X, Y and Z. And then she said, and I'm not the mother in the book. <laughs> <laughs> the second story is with this book. And, it, and I did feel a bit brave. I wasn't I, when I first started with the idea of writing a mother-daughter book, I knew I had to, to contribute to the literature. I thought, oh, well, I have to write to my mother. I have to wait till my mother is deceased. But my mother is in, she's an, a, a fabulously healthy and active 87-year-old. So she's not going anywhere. So I just realized that I could write a book that was different. It wasn't about us anyway. And she's read the book. I think she's read it twice. Um, she also has her perspective on the book she had a different perspective each reading apparently. So she came into it, hence the title from where I stand. We all come into every conversation with our own ideas of what's going to happen. But she called me up at the very beginning and she said, I don't like the grandmother. And she was very disturbed by that. And I said, and she was still, she was still reading, but it was really early on. And I said, well, I said, you'll like her by the end of the book. I said, all the characters are, are moving along an arc. They all have a lot to learn. She will learn as well. Don't worry. <laughs> well, it's always great to have somebody who is honest with us about our writing. And, and it helps us to, to relook at what we've written. Because sometimes people say, well, I didn't get that. And I'll think, well, why didn't you get that? It was very obvious, but it's what's obvious to us after writing for so long on the same story is not always obvious to our readers. Exactly, exactly. There's nothing like an honest reader. <laughs> Caroline, our writers over 50 are quite unique. Do you have any advice that you can give for writers 50 and above? Uh, my advice would be to keep on writing. And even in any fashion, and a shopping list counts. I make lists every day, uh, not ju just the shopping, but lists of what I need to do, uh, what I'm thinking about. I try to think about my writing at all hours of the day. I'm a swimmer, so I get a lot of a lot done underwater. In fact, I I usually solve my the problems in my stories, the things that aren't working while I'm underwater. I have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great opportunity. And also just keep on writing. If people say it's too late or no one's going to read it or, you know, no one is really, um, you know, you may not have a big audience. It just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Write if you would love it and just keep on going with it. I think that's great advice and a great place for us to end our chat today. I thank you so much for being with us all the way from across uh, many ponds and 
we just hope that you'll continue to be one of our writers over 50. Thank you so much. I just loved being with you. And I'm so happy that you're giving airspace and time to writers over 50 because it is there are growing numbers of us and we deserve some attention too. That is so true. So thank you, Caroline. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.